eventually the situation was, okay, this is an American guy, and then, okay, we need to divert because this guy needs to be in a hospital. And uh, they, they were flying. Uh, options were Baku in uh, Azerbaijan or uh, Tehran in uh, Iran. Wow. <laughs> Does it sound interesting, the story so far? Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. Alright, welcome back. If you fly enough, it's only a matter of time before you hear those not-so-welcome words over the intercom. Is there a doctor or medical professional aboard? So, do you hit that flight attendant button or wait for someone else to do it first? When you're stuck at 35,000 feet, options are limited. You might even feel a little like our past guest, Gavin Francis, serving as the only doctor available in a remote Antarctic research base. So what are your options? Who can you call? Is there medical equipment available? What are your legal risks and ethical responsibilities? And how often does this stuff actually happen? Today, we're going behind the scenes with Dr. Paulo Alves, Global Medical Director for MedAir, a company contracted with most of the world's commercial airlines to provide real-time medical assistance from their emergency command center in Phoenix, Arizona. If that's not exciting enough, they also specialize in emergency medical evacuations, crew training, and medical and security preparations for private jets, yachts, and even cruise ships. It's a fascinating world many of us know very little about. With that said, let's get started. Paula, thanks so much for carving out some time for us. We're super excited to have you today. This is just a fascinating topic. Thank you very much. Uh, my, my pleasure here. Thanks for having me. Paula, your company, MedAir, which, of which you're the global medical director, there's a lot of things you guys do. I mean, everything from emergency medical evacuations to training crews aboard commercial aircraft to private jets to yachts. I mean, you name it. But your specialty and what you work on is mostly in commercial air travel and medical emergencies that come up on aircraft. Paula, tell us, how did you get into this first? Where was your path? Uh, okay, well, uh, I'm uh, originally uh, Brazilian, and I'm a cardiologist by background. And uh, I, I used to work for a Brazilian airline at the time, the, the largest Brazilian airline. And that airline happened to be client of, of Medair. So we, we started developing a, you know, a good relationship. And of course, uh, this is a, 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 always an interesting topic, right? What to do uh, and how frequent and uh, exactly what sort of equipment you should have. So I, I got more and more interested in what we say, uh, call uh, aviation medicine. And, and particularly in what we call the passenger health aspect of uh, aviation medicine. So long story short, the, the uh, the, uh, the airline that I was working for uh, went bankrupt. And uh, by chance, you know, Medair, uh, not knowing uh, about that, invited me if I wanted to, you know, to, to join the, the team here. So, and, uh, so, and now I'm, uh, so was 23 years with the airline and plus uh, 10 years now with Medair. Well, fortunately, there's nothing unusual about airlines going bankrupt. I worked for one called Midway a long time ago when I was in college. And I remember... They went bankrupt the day after I put my resignation in to go back to my sophomore uh, year in college. And they called me to tell me I was laid off that night. And I said, actually, I resigned this morning. And they said, oh, my God, <laughs> you're so lucky. <laughs> anyway, totally unrelated story, but um, definitely to, not unusual say, in that industry. You got to say you can't fire me. I quit. It's perfect. Yeah, and I probably, I don't know, I would have gotten unemployment, but um, yeah, whatever. I was in college, so it didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> so, Paulo, how long has uh, Medair been in business? Yes, Medair uh, I th was founded uh, 35 years ago, give or take, and uh, by uh, a nurse uh, called Joan Garrett. And uh, she was an, uh, a uh, 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 helicopter nurse, so she was a you know a flight nurse, and uh, here in Arizona, and a visionary. So, you know, uh, the, the story actually that uh, started the whole company was uh, one day she was, uh, uh, she was called, you know, the, the helicopter services, the evacuation services were, uh, was called to, you know, because of a rollover, you know, in the outskirts uh, of uh, uh, Phoenix here. And, uh, but as soon as they were about to be deployed and they canceled the, the situation, 
and then they called again. By the time she, she arrived, there was a, a little boy uh, severely injured. And uh, long story short, the, the boy, uh, last words were, was when she held the boy and understood the situation, the boy said, you know, I love you, and died. Uh, and she, that was, a, of course, a shocking experience for her. And then she had this idea of, come, I could have helped if, uh, if they, you know, could be, uh, this boy could be, number one, better assessed or there any you know, local resources that we can even, you know, uh, coach uh, anyone remotely. So and that was the concept uh, for her to create the company. And, uh, you know, then, you know, in a few years, actually, from a very uh, simple solution, uh, we, in a partnership with the with the doctors at the uh, at at the time the Good Sam Hospital here in Phoenix, so they built this uh, very simple uh, solution, which uh, in trying to address all the elements around a remote medical event, particularly in in the aviation sector. Uh, but as you mentioned, it's not only the aviation; we also uh, help in the you know the luxury uh, sector. But you know, essentially, the situation is the same. But uh, then. Uh, Everything around this, so training the, the crews, because you need to have people uh, with the ability to assess the situation and to take a immediate action as required. You need to have some, you know, some resources for you to, uh, to, to act. And, of course, you need to have the expertise. So for, you know, we were uh, known as the 3E company by education, equipment, and expertise, trying exactly to approach this problem from all angles. So there's a lot to, to talk about here. You know, some of uh, the physicians and nurses in our audience have gotten this call and responded on planes. Some haven't. But there's still a lot that they don't know and none of us know about what actually happens after a passenger shows symptoms on a plane and a call goes out. One, is there a doctor on board or a medical professional? What, just take us what, behind the scenes here. What, what happens after that? And then what is Medair's role? Okay. Well, uh, it, it varies. I know that the process will vary slightly from, uh, from airline to airline, how I know the solution is inserted into their uh, own procedures, internal procedures. Uh, so you have those that will call us only if, you know, everything else fails, and those that have us as the way to, to deal with a medical event. So meaning that they call us first, and then if we believe that there is a need for additional help, then we recommend for a doctor to be uh, uh, called or paged. So, uh, and, and some will only call us if there's no doctor or something like that. But anyway, uh, what happens is that once uh, they, they have an emergency, they can contact us uh, by whatever means they have. Uh, the best way will be satellite phone. So they can call us directly or they can call us indirectly so they can use their radio to communicate with a radio station on the ground, and the radio station will then do a, a, a patch, a phone patch to us. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, the, how could I say, the, uh, the technology <laughs> around it, right? But, um, and again, the procedure might, might vary from uh, airline to, to airline. Some of them will have the SETCOM ideal situation, by the way, uh, at the passenger cabin, some will need to, to have all the communications relayed through the cockpit. So there are, you know, several challenges. And when I say, you know, radio communication, I don't know how we are, we are speaking here, Skype, it's unbelievable, the quality. You cannot even imagine how bad the quality could be in a HF radio communication. Wow. Yeah. But one important message, you know, if you, you know in good takeaway, uh, I think, is that uh, the medical volunteer should know that uh, – 100% of the major airlines, uh, U.S.-based major airlines, uh, actually in the U.S., virtually every airline uh, has a, a, a contract with what we call a ground-based uh, medical assistance service. So they are never alone. So that's a, I think it's a very important message, and most of the, the international ones will hire a service like ours. Well, before we get into all the details, too, Ten more questions here, but just give us a, an overview of the stats here. I mean, how often is a medical emergency happening on a plane, and what are the most common symptoms that uh, passengers or patients are presenting with? Okay, and again, this is a, a, a and sorry if I if I'm being too strict here, 
But one reality is that we don't have a, a very good definition of what constitutes a medical emergency, right? So, I mean, uh, an emergency is an emergency, but, you know, a medical event, as I said, since uh, it depends on their procedure, from our uh, vintage point, a medical event happens when the flight attendant decides so and contact us, right? But with, with this caveat, uh, and again, knowing that they wouldn't miss the most severe ones, uh, we received just last year, we received uh, 53,000 uh, uh, cases. Wow. I'm not saying calls, cases. So that makes, you know, uh, you do the math. Uh, it's, it's, we can estimate that, uh, and there's some papers published on that, that we have a, a serious medical event for every 600 flights, give or take. Uh, in our stats, we have uh, one, there's another way to, to see it, is one uh, medical event for every 40,000 passengers flying and one serious event, uh, meaning uh, uh, requiring a diversion, for example, for every uh, million uh, uh, passengers flown. So this gives us uh, an idea. Uh, and, uh, and again, uh, the most common events are actually, depends a little bit on the, if we're talking about short haul flights or long haul flights, but long haul flights, you're gonna see more gastrointestinal events, namely, you know, uh, 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 nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and they, they can call uh, us for that. Nausea, vomit is actually uh, number one. Uh, in short haul flights, you see uh, a lot of uh, neurological events, for example, uh, common fainting, right? Uh, vasovagal syncope is the number one and probably the most concerning one because, as you know, uh, vasovagal syncope it looks bad, right? So you, until you realize, okay, this is just a syncope, the person, you barely feel a pulse, the person is not responding, is sweaty, you know, uh, so it, it looks uh, horrible. And probably this is the f uh, number one cause for what we call unwarranted uh, medical diversions, right? Because typically the person will recover uh, uh, sooner or later, and then they want to get back on board the, 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 the airplane. Right. So, right. Not to uh, mention but, everybody uh, else, too. Right. Uh, exactly. So... Uh, well, we, we have stories here. There was one that they diverted. The guy recovered immediately. It was a, a vasovagal syncope. He wanted to get back to the... They diverted to... Uh, it was a trans-Pacific uh, flight diverted to, to Anchorage. And, uh, and then uh, the other passengers refused the passenger to come back. You know, so the, no, 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 you, you can't come back. No, you are a troublemaker. So no, you stay, we go. <laughs> So things like that can happen. And again, uh, uh, a diversion is, is, uh, is, a, is a fantastic resource, right? You can uh, land an aircraft. But, you know, if you do that for no reason, it's, it doesn't help anyone, right? It's costly to the airline. It's, uh, you know, a disruption for every other passenger and sometimes a problem for the uh, concerned passenger as well. Well, I just know from my past experience, you know, one canceled flight, one delay can have ripple effects across the whole system. So it's just unbelievable how that works. And I do, I do believe most airlines, they, you know, their passenger safety is number one, but the costs have to be considered. I mean, what I've read, there are some estimates of what it costs when they have to divert a flight. It's, it's pretty expensive, isn't it? Well, uh, yes, it could be, it could be outrageously, uh, you know, expensive, but, uh, trust me, uh, you know, in being working with the airlines, you know, although, as I said, you know, diversion is, is, a, is a problem and causes disruption. So there are direct and indirect costs associated with that. But uh, trust me, uh, there is no airline that, you know, hire us with a specific purpose to reduce diversions. And actually, when they, uh, you know, if there's one that say, oh, no, no, could you, you know, uh, have a uh, you know a, some result clause or anything like that attached. Though, if you reduce, we 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 refuse immediately, because you know this is not our business. The business is to make the right call, because the you know if you do the wrong call, you know it's it's at least bad exposure to the airline, right? right. So they they don't want that. Uh, so uh, again, it's about to make the best recommendation for that specific passenger. So it's right. a duty of care thing, uh, uh, above all. Yeah. You say that uh, all the major carriers in, uh, in the United States are, are covered, use Medair or something similar. 
Is there a federal mandate for this or is this something that they all said, you know, this is just a good idea, we should do it? That's exactly right. There is no mandate, uh, not at all. Uh, of course, uh, uh, we, we have a, a very good uh, re uh, relationship with uh, regulators, uh, you know, around the planet. And mm -hmm. there's, uh, there is no uh, country that requires this, uh, you know, uh, per uh, regulation. But uh, as I said, and as you said, you know, it became a best practice. You know, it, 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 it is just a, a good way to, to address this problem because, again, it is a problem, right? Because if you do the math, one for every 600 flights, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot in terms of, I mean, relatively small number. But the bulk number is, is pretty big. As I said, you know, 53,000 just us last year, right? right. So it's, it's a, uh, because again, uh, those events happen to people, right? So the more people you have concentrated, the more you're gonna see, right? We estimate, for example, that, you know, at any time and right now, there are probably uh, a million from something between, you know, 800 up to 2 million people. So let's, uh, get an average of 1 million people suspended in the air. This is quite a sizable city, isn't it? So That's in any huge. city, you know, if you observe, you know, for you know, three, four hours, 12 hours, things are going to happen, right? Just right. by chance. So that's, the, that's how things uh, work in that yeah. space. I have um, good friends who have been doctors on cruise ships. And um, I say, oh, what a, what a nice life. And I say, yeah, except we're busy. And I think you don't realize that even the comparatively small population of cruise ship, people get sick with minor things. And then just about every uh, voyage, there's at least one major, major event. And now it's population driven. And the fact that they're in a, a place for more than, say, uh, eight or 10 hours. But Still, it's it's whenever you get a group together, that's at risk. So you need to have that coverage. You need to have the, the resources. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and again, you know, uh, uh, one million people is is uh, it's a big city. You know, the other day I was curious to know how many cities in the U.S. are larger, you know, in population than uh, one million, and there are only ten. <laughs> Think about it. Wow. In the U.S. So. You know, it's, uh, and again, the reality is that, you know, just to think about it, you know, uh, the, the, the prevalence of, uh, you know, uh, silent coronary disease, you know, coronary disease in the, you know, uh, elderly population is 10%, meaning that 10% will have some, I mean, have some underlying pre-existing condition, right, that can occlude at any moment, including, you know, uh, during the, the, the trip itself. Uh, <laughs> and, and in addition to that, of course, and I think it's uh, it's something that is interesting because it's still interesting that you know that not everyone knows the detail that you know when we are flying, the cabin is pressurized. Otherwise, you, you know it, it would be impossible to you know to be at uh, thirty-seven thousand feet. So the cabin right. is pressurized, but not pressurized to sea level. So when you are up there in most aircraft, you are around six to eight thousand feet. So this is uh, Mexico City. Right. So it's not exactly it, it's altitude anyway. So right. if anyone has a borderline situation that that can be, you know, decompensated by hypoxia, for example, you know, mild hypoxia. And I'm thinking about, you know, the, the unstable uh, uh, angina and uh, the COPDs, uh, you know, uh, that are borderline prior to the flight, they might experience, you know, uh, uh, a bad situation. Right. Just out of curiosity, Paulo. I was wondering about that. Why is it that uh, planes are pressurized to around anywhere from six to eight thousand feet? Uh, is it an engineering or cost? Is, is uh, why not have them pressurized at, at sea level? Now that's a good question, and it, actually the the response is a, a, it's a combination of factors, right? Uh, economical and performance factors, because uh, uh, number one, you know, the pressurization comes, you know, in most aircraft there, are, you know, some exceptions. But in most aircraft, it comes from the, 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 the power through the engine. So the thrust that, you know, pushes the aircraft forward also is, is bled into the cabin, generating that pressure, right? So there, you're already stealing some, some thrust by, by pressurizing the cabin. And number wow. two, when you have these gradients across the, 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 the fuselage, of course, you have to have a material that is resistant to, to that uh, gradient pressure. 
right? Otherwise, it will, it will burst, right? And actually, the first one did exactly that, uh, right? It, it, it could burst just because of the, the high and the tension yeah. uh, across the wall. So it is a compromise solution. And of course, then you could have, you know, a very resistant material, but that would tend to be heavy as well. So the newer aircraft, they have uh, composite material that, are, uh, that, that is more resistant uh, to the, and, and at the same time, very light. That's why newer aircraft, like the, the, the 787, for example, they pressurized uh, at cruise level at a much lower altitude. But... Uh, Still not at sea level. Right. But but still not Mexico City level. So that does make a big difference. That's great. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. Well, Paula, let, let's, I know every airline has different policies, different uh, technology for communications, but let's just pick one. You know, of course, we don't have to name which one, but assuming that it's a cardiac event and it's looking serious and assuming there's a doctor on board who volunteered, who actually makes the decision if that plane needs to be diverted, how it's going to be diverted, where? Uh, just give us, you know, one example because it's, I, you know, I would imagine, you know, the doctor on board would have a lot of authority, but it really isn't in their hands, is it? No, not at all. I mean, legally and from every aspect, uh, the captain is the sole responsible for that decision. Right. So and this is important because you are uh, just recommending and you should stay on your medical grounds. Right. And of course, uh, and this is actually the beauty of, uh, of a company like uh, like Medair, because uh, we have uh, number one, we have uh, visibility. We have a database of uh, uh, hospital resources and, and facilities around the, the, the major airports. Uh, the captain ultimately is the sole res legal responsible for making a decision to, to divert because he or she is always weighing you know, the safety of one person versus the safety of everyone else. So he uh, needs, uh, needs to consider, he or she needs to consider you know, all uh, weather uh, and uh, runway, all the operational factors. In most cases also, when we are, uh, the, the best scenario is when there is a three-party you know, uh, uh, conference, and, and this is exactly how we, we operate. So we try to engage a third uh, professional in this, uh, in this game who is the dispatcher. The dispatcher is the, the person at the uh, airline level who understands everything about fuel and uh, do, do, do they have handling in that specific airport? You know, is there any security aspect also associated with that airport? So between, uh, and so the, the, the three parties, uh, the, the doctor makes the assessments uh, in terms of, okay, this condition is life-threatening or is limb-threatening, is uh, you know, organ-threatening. So it's something that will benefit from an early landing or needs to, uh, uh, to, to, to land early to, to get into a hospital. Knowing that sometimes it's impossible, right? I mean, uh, it can take more than, you know, than 30 minutes uh, just to, to prepare and to, to find the right airport. If actually, if, if you're close to an airport, even if you're uh, you know, overflying an airport, you, know, you, you need at least 20 to 30 minutes to get on the ground. Sure. So uh, uh, it's not as simple as, uh, as uh, it might sound, but again, these uh, three people uh, taking uh, analyzing analyzing the situation, they will decide where to go. So the doctor makes the recommendation: we need to go, and then they offer us options from the operational standpoint, and we verify uh, from the uh, medical standpoint which one is preferable. Does it make sense? So it does. first of all, we analyze M medically; it is recommended. Then pilot and uh, dispatcher. Uh, offer alternatives uh, uh, for airport, different airports, if, if any. Sometimes you don't. And then, you know, the, they, they decide to go. And then the, the captain, of course, takes the, makes the decision, uh, the final decision to, to land the plane. So really, so the Medair Operations Center, this is staffed, by the way, by emergency room uh, physicians, right, and nurses. And they are just, they, they're working off the information they have. I mean, they can't examine the patient in person, obviously relying on the medical professional volunteer who stepped up on the plane. And it's really not so much a recommendation that's coming from Medair. It's more of an analyzing information and then presenting the options to the captain. Is that correct? 
That's correct, because uh, uh, and I think the the right words is exactly that uh, are exactly that. So we don't make a diagnosis; we make a risk assessment, right? right. We collect uh, as many elements uh, uh, in this decision process as possible to you know to assess uh, the situation, and then of course we cannot force the aircraft to to land, and then we make a, a recommendation for that air, uh, aircraft to land. But uh, and besides that, uh, what happens is that uh, you know we have a, a one person working with us, a professional that we call the communication specialist executive, CSE for short, uh, and that person is the one actually answering initially the phone, and they uh, and they take care of all the logistical aspects about it. So they are very familiar with uh, the aviation language, which is absolutely critical because when you're uh, making a recommendation and uh, under you know uh, challenging communication uh, environment, so that if the line is not good, you need to be very accurate and you need to have you know a, a protocol to to uh, to acknowledge you know that you receive the message and to read back the message so everyone is in, in control of the situation. So it's it's uh, I mean it's a very complex. Uh, uh, and, and uh, I mean, it, it's simple when, when you are, of course, familiar with it. But I mean, uh, many elements that you need to have to have a, a system like that in place. So do you prefer, assuming a satellite phone is available, uh, do you prefer to be uh, talking directly to the physician volunteer, or medical professional volunteer on the plane? Uh, do you go through the, the captain? I mean, what's ordinarily happening there? Yeah, no, we have all sorts of uh, of possibilities, right? So uh, sometimes we t we are speaking to the uh, to to the pilot, sometimes to the flight attendant, and eventually, you know, occasionally we uh, we have the ability to to talk directly to the medical volunteer. Not always possible because, as I said, if uh, the communication is relayed through the cockpit, uh, it's not every day that you can allow someone into the cockpit that right. is not you know part of the crew for security reasons. Uh, some airlines will allow for that under, you know, exceptional circumstances, but this is a definitely not not the rule at all. Uh, some will have the ability to, you know, but uh, to communicate. Uh, as I said, if they have uh, a phone uh, device in the passenger cabin, then you can, you know, talk directly to the medical volunteer. So, but mm -hmm. sometimes it could be very challenging. It could be, you know, uh, patient or passenger to medical volunteer, medical volunteer to flight attendant, flight attendant to cop, captain, captain to us, and uh, all the way back. So it could be very challenging, and therefore you need to be very precise and very, how could I say, calm and used to to do this uh, remotely. World's highest stake games of game of telephone. So <laughs> exactly. Um, well. Now, um, this is something obviously by definition has never occurred for me because I am a doctor. So by definition, when I'm flying, there is a medical professional. What happens on those cases? And, and I know statistically it's unusual. What if there are no medical professionals? What if nobody says, yeah, I can, I can assess this. I can look at this. What, what do you do? Well, this is not unusual at all you know, for many reasons. Yes, yeah, sometimes you don't have any, right? Uh, right. and, and, and sometimes uh, uh, you have, but they don't volunteer, you know, afraid of uh, anything, uh, you know, uh, or, you know, who knows. Uh, but anyways, it's not a, an unusual scenario. Typically, we'll get the information from the flight attendant because, again, we are not trying to diagnose the situation. And we are right. so familiar with them that, you know, uh, you know they acquired the experience of saying, you know, this is not looking good. And, uh, and sometimes what we, we can do is that we, uh, particularly if we, we are not comfortable with the situation, we ask them to call again in 30 minutes, right? And then we have more observation time. And, uh, right. and sometimes, you know, when they, uh, and, and I think this is where we can, you know, truly change that game. Because uh, I think we, we're going to open, a, you know, a, 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 another chapter now. But, you know, how comfortable the medical volunteer is because sometimes you know uh, they don't respond to the first call they respond to, and they wait for someone else to to respond mm -hmm. and there's no one then they 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 volunteer in a very uncomfortable situation because if they were comfortable they will you know immediately respond to the first uh, uh, announcement right so and and this is the message because uh, the perfect the best combination possible is exactly when we have someone on board that knows that we exist 
that knows our background, knows that we, they will be talking to emergency physicians, highly experienced in dealing with this sort of situation. So this can, uh, you know, uh, remove the, the weight on their shoulders because they are not making any decision. We are, you know, actually backing them up. Uh, we are behind them. So this right. is actually, you know, a, a perfect combination when they can be eyes and hands, uh, and and we can do, you know, the the you know the the, the decision process, uh, the recommendation process, right? Yeah. And knowing that everything will be documented and they will be, I mean, uh, absolutely exempt. So they don't need to to feel, you know, alone or abandoned in, in such a situation, very uncomfortable situation. Okay, this is a good time to ask this, I think. For those listening right now who've never been in this situation, what would be your advice to them? You know, the, the call goes out over the intercom. Is there a physician or medical professional board? What are the legal issues? You know, are they protected? Um, what resources are available on the plane? You know, typically emergency packs and oxygen and medicines. What should they be aware of when they're trying to decide how to respond, if to respond, and what they're gonna, what resources they're going to have available? Okay. Yes. So let's uh, let's start by the. You know the the aspect of uh, you know the legal aspects of that. So in the U.S., there is a specific uh, uh, legislation, uh, the Good Samaritan Act, to protect those that uh, volunteer uh, in in an aircraft helping, and uh, so they are protected by this act. Uh, of course, you know someone can you know not feel okay and try to sue, but you know th th this uh, legislation will protect uh, the medical volunteer. And uh, which is actually, you know, uh, phenomenal because there's no other professional like ours that, you know, are someone to this sort of, uh, of duty, right? right. Uh, you don't see lawyers being paged or, you know, engineers or anything. It's, it's just us to, to, to help. So, uh, so they, they need to have this comfort that they are legally protected. Uh, but uh, the, the protected will be uh, broken if... Uh, number one, they received any compensation for the service because now then is not volunteer anymore. Is you know it now became a, a commercial thing, or if they are, do some gross you know negligent or uh, you know or uh, bad medical act, gross. So uh, they are typically protected. But uh, the the problem of compensation, I think it's a it's a it's a big one because uh, some people will actually claim for compensation after the, after the fact sometimes, but very high compensation. And of course, then you're gonna have some uh, uh, discussion about what constitutes uh, compensation. It's just money or miles is also you know, some sort of currency. Well, my advice in, under those circumstances is for you to accept, you know, uh, never accept cash or any uh, uh, obvious uh, sort of compensation but to accept not for the, your medical act, but for the, you know, the inconvenience that was caused to you. Because first of all, you know, when you answer those calls, you might have interrupted whatever you were doing, you know, enjoying your wine, the entertainment or your book or whatever, right? So you were, uh, there was some inconvenience caused to you because you volunteered. So I think that uh, you could be, uh, how could I say, compensated for that inconvenience, but please don't, uh, charge for your services because that will broke uh, that will broke the, the the spell. Don't so send the patient speak. a bill then. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. Right. So, uh, but uh, uh, but then uh, back to the to 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 the resources. So the resources are regulated by you know there are recommendations coming from the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO. So, uh, which is a UN agency. So they do, uh, they uh, publish the standards for safety in aviation on a, a worldwide uh, uh, spectrum, right? And then each and uh, every country will, can modify this. Typically, if the country is a UN uh, member, they shouldn't have less than what uh, ICAO is uh, suggesting or recommending, but they can have more. Uh, and then the airline can go also uh, above and beyond and, and have more resources. But typically the resources are directed to two sort of, of events. Because if you plot uh, the, the events, their frequency and their severity, no, there is no such a thing that is really severe, really you know, life-threatening and frequent. There's no such a thing. 
We, what we do have is rare events that are life-threatening, i.e. sudden cardiac arrest, right? And you have you know, not, not so serious events that are frequent, nausea, vomiting, syncope, seizures, and, uh, and all this stuff. So what we need to have is exactly the resources to address those two extremes, the frequent, the, the inconvenient ones, and right. of course, they need to have uh, the ability, in my opinion, uh, to, to have uh, things to address a cardiac arrest situation. Right? right, because uh, if you have a shockable rhythm, you know you, you can be saved. Right, if it was a true, you know, uh, primary ventricular fibrillation event, you, you mm -hmm. can be saved in flight. Um, if you have an AD, of course. And that's probably a minimum expectation, at least in the U.S., that there would be an AD event, <coughs> right? The AD is uh, actually mandatory in the U.S., okay. uh, but not elsewhere, hmm. not every country. But just mm. like, you know, services like ours, it became a best practice. So today, you know, for one reason or, uh, or another, you know, uh, every, every major airline, uh, it will be an exception today not to have it. And while we're still on legal things, uh, HIPAA, how does that come into play here? I mean, is the patient's name transmitted down to the operations center? Do you ever make a, an attempt to contact maybe their family physician to get an idea of their medical background? Is that not critical at that point? How, how does that come into play? No, that's, a, that's an excellent question because, no, we don't collect any uh, personal identifiable information, right? You don't want to know that, you know, a certain uh, treat, uh, uh, you know, uh, pit bread is flying, you know, in a, uh, and having a medical problem or whatever, right? So we don't want to, uh, anyone to be recognized, uh, the, hmm. the passenger, because it is an open line, ultimately. Right, it's a radio line and even a setcom uh, line. So we don't uh, collect any names uh, when we deal with the uh, with the situation. Sometimes we uh, only collect the, the the seat number just for reference, uh, if we have another one. But uh, and actually we don't need anything because uh, and I didn't mention that you know of course the, the service doesn't end after we make a recommendation either to divert or to continue. Uh, if the situation so uh, requires, we will activate EMS upon arrival so, uh, so that we can expedite the process of the, uh, the passenger being evaluated uh, upon arrival. And then, but it's only one passenger per flight, so there's no problem in identifying that. So we don't need uh, names and we don't collect them at all. Interesting. Pa Paulo, the um, Good Samaritan laws, are those, uh, and Colin were talking about this uh, recently, those related to uh, what carrier you're in, so lo as long as you're in the air but in the same plane and it's an American plane, you're covered by the Good Samaritan laws? Or is it dependent on where you're flying over? We were a little uncertain how the, the concept of the airspace. Uh, I, uh, okay, now that's a, a very uh, interesting point. Yes, the aircraft, uh, until they land in the, in the foreign soil, they are considered soil of the uh, registration of the aircraft. So I if see. you're flying over, but, um, uh, but again, you know, when people want to, uh, to, to, to litigate, they can, you know, but, but typically yeah. the situation is as simple as that. What really okay. matters is the registration of the aircraft. With that said, uh, again, although there's no formal regulation like the Good Samaritan Act here in the U.S., which, by the way, uh, it is a, you know, uh, uh, it's known to be a litigative uh, country for, that, uh, for those matters. It, it's not so much uh, elsewhere. Uh, but still, there is a lot of, uh, of protection. As long as you act as a Samaritan, you, know, uh, you, are, you are okay. And even because you know, in certain countries, for example, France and Brazil, my, my original country, you are actually required to volu required to volunteer. Mm. It right. would be an, an you know unethical not to help. Yeah. So, as a, uh, a licensed physician, would you recommend our listeners uh, just try to figure out what what the rules would be if they're going on an international carrier? Let's say they're flying um, uh, any any um, non-American carrier. Should they look mm. into the laws just in case it comes up, just so they know? No, I would say that they, they should you know, behave just like you know, uh, normally, uh, like they would be in the U.S. They will be you know, protected anyway, I, I would say, as long as they don't you know, incur in, in gross uh, negligence or 
you know, and again, if they don't charge for for the services rendered, uh, I mean, they they are protected. They are pretty much protected. And also knowing, and, I, and that question, I would encourage them, you know, to to ask in every single time, is that do you have a ground-based uh, medical uh, advisory system, you know, in, in place? Uh, because then I would like to talk to them, or I'd like to, you to relay this information. So please, you know, make sure that they are contacted, right? Particularly if you are in, if you are asked, for example, about the diversion or something that you know it's out of your uh, comfort zone. Please keep in mind that uh, you know services like Medair they they exist, right? And probably it is Medair, you know, in 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 a good part of the of the clientele because we have a, a very you know important market share. But anyways, uh, that they are not alone and they are, you know, a phone call away or a radio call away to, right. to get expert help. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really good to know. Um, uh, I mentioned to you offline that I've been involved in probably three or four uh, flight instances where um, I waited and I, I was the only person who could respond. So I did respond and yet nobody on the carrier, nobody on the plane or anything said, oh, by the way, we're in touch with or um, that Medair is, is backing you up. I think it's something that um, a lot of our listeners probably are not completely aware of. And if they know that there's someone else that they can say, you know, I this is what it looks like, but I'm an orthopedist. I don't know. That's going to be a game changer. I think people will, will be much more likely to volunteer in that setting. Do you... Um, do you recommend the flight crew when they enlist a volunteer tell them, oh, by the way, we have Medair on the line, or or is that something that depends entirely on the airport? No, no, no. We 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 strongly recommend, and actually, you know, and and, and this is uh, this is very important because you know, um, sometimes you know what I'm about to say might might sound that we uh, don't like the, the the medical volunteer when it's exactly the opposite. But what we recommend for, to, to the airlines is to have us, you know, uh, and, and I have data to, 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 sh to support that this is probably the best approach, uh, which is if they have a medical uh, situation, they need to assess. Because if the situation is such that the person is unconscious and, you know, not breathing or not breathing normally, they need to act immediately. Even before, you know, prior, uh, 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 paging for the doctor, they need to attach the AD, they need to start CPR. Right, right, because it, it, it is uh, time critical. Now, if the situation is not that you know that, that urgent, then we recommend them to to call us and to give us a, a, an idea. Sometimes we're going to say, "Well, let's try this or that," and that's you know, and, and let's see how 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 it goes. Or and sometimes you say, "No, no, 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 no. This is uh, you know, this uh, required some be better evaluation. Please uh, try to page for a medical volunteer and then uh, to ask." Uh, his or her assessment, and then we go from there. So we do this sort of triage as well. And uh, number one, the benefit, uh, and trust me, I'm a, a frequent traveler. So when you do a public announcement requesting a physician in a, uh, you know, uh, overnight flight, now you just stress the whole cabin, right? right. So now everyone is excited. Uh, people are already taking their phones and, and, and trying to record what's going on. <laughs> I mean, this is absolutely... Uh, probably unnecessary because today, just to give you an idea, less than two percent of the cases that we handle ended up in a diversion. So, meaning that you know, in ninety-eight percent of the instances, we can sort of handle the situation with uh, you know, uh, uh, with, uh, with the, the resources available. So let's freak out only in the two percent, or should I say, let's not freak out and take the the the, the right actions. But again, let's not engage everyone unnecessarily you know right. because i think that that's not uh, that doesn't add any value to the with that said so this is how we prefer things to occur uh, so back to 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 your uh, original question yes we encourage them to call us and to engage us even you know if there is a medical volunteer because then we can work you know uh, uh, in synergy and by the way if we have a medical person then that medical person could be, and we have cases of, it could be, you know, a, a, a doctor, a nurse. Uh, we've been helped by dentists, veterinarians, and, and medical students, you name it. Because now, right. you know, they are absolutely alleviated from the responsibility of making a decision that they were never trained to do, which is, right. should I divert this aircraft, yes or no? 
right? Yeah, especially the veterinarian. <laughs> that one's a little iffy. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, there's no textbook uh, saying that. And, and honestly, I've been in this situation many times myself. And again, I'm a cardiologist. Probably I know uh, the person who studied this, you know, uh, one of the top 10 people in the, studying this topic in, in, in this planet, right? But I'm very uncomfortable because, uh, you know, it's not my hospital, it's not my resources. So right. I'm always out of my game, right, of my, my best game. Uh, I have a story the other day. Uh, I was flying and then the, 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 there's a, a call and I was uh, flying back uh, in, in the aircraft. And then when I uh, uh, volunteer, and of course I, I, I volunteer uh, all the time, uh, I feel obliged to. So the flight attendant said, oh, thank you. No, you we already have uh, uh, another volunteer there. So you can go back to your seat. And I thought, you know what? No. No, I don't know who, who, who is the other person, how qualified he is, right? Uh, uh, the, the, this doctor who, who, who volunteered there, and I could see them. Uh, so let, let, let me try to help. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I made my, my way through. And then when I finally reached the scene, it was a baby crying and saying, okay, Casey, it's yours, come on. No, I'm just a cardiologist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I treat babies. You know? So every situation is different. But, for example, uh, our doctors, they are ER doctors. So they are absolutely you know, trained in, in triaging the cases and understanding, right, uh, from the uh, emergency medicine uh, standpoint. So, again, they will provide this layer of comfort if you have a medical volunteer. So we're getting close to the time here, Paulo, but uh, a few more questions and we'll wrap it up. We were talking just briefly about an international story before we got going, and this was a U.S. citizen traveling to the Middle East. And this, this is interesting because this has a lot to do with some of our you know, questions earlier about traveling nationally. Let's, let's take that story and uh, share that with our viewers. Yeah, that, that's uh, one of my favorite stories because it actually it's a good example of uh, you know, all, uh, many of the, of the challenges. So this was a Middle Eastern Airlines, and uh, some of them, they are, you know, they are very young airlines, and they are very competitive, and they have, you know, most of them carry devices today uh, that are able, it's a, a so-called Tempest device. It, is a, it was designed to be used by lay people and to be carried you know, on board of, uh, of aircraft. Uh, but anyways, it's a multi-parameter monitor that includes a 12-lead ECG. So this was, uh, the case was a, a gentleman flying uh, from Middle East uh, back to the U.S., an American citizen, and they are flying initially over uh, Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, they, they departed from someplace in the, in, the, in the Middle East, and they are flying that region. So one hour into the flight, uh, uh, he started with uh, chest pain, typical chest pain, you know, a dull chest pain, middle of the chest uh, with some radiation to the jaw, and they... Uh, then we said, well, you, you carry the, the ECG, please obtain an ECG. And they, uh, uh, they, they tried that, uh, but they were not able to, to connect for some reason, technical glitch at that, at that day. They were not able to connect and to transmit the ECG to us. Hmm. But then there was an American-educated uh, uh, EMT who volunteered, and uh, he was able to read the ECG for us. So saying, oh, I see that, you know, from the screen of the device here, that there is a, a, a ST segment elevation here in 2, 3, and, and F. And then we were able to ask him, so uh, can you tell me, you know, how many millimeters? And I said, oh, yeah, it's two in, in three, probably one. And then we asked, any reciprocal changes in the, in the anterior leads? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, there is a depression of ST segment in the V2. One, two, V3. So he was able to describe the situation. Well, this is a STEMI. And the treatment of a STEMI is to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to reopen the artery. So then we, said, we, we uh, came and to, to the captain. There was no physician that day. And I said, well, we need to divert because uh, these men will certainly benefit from uh, uh, being in the hospital immediately. And so the options, as remember that then we asked for what the option would be. And uh, the options were Baku uh, in Azerbaijan and uh, Tehran in Iran. All great options. And uh, they, uh, right, great <laughs> options. But then, you know, surprisingly, when we looked into the medical facilities around the airport in both uh, 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 cities, actually, they are very good. Huh. They are able to, you know, to do primary angioplasty in both countries. 
And then you said, you know what, you can, you know, either uh, are, are good options. And then the captain said, oh, you know what, but uh, to me, it's better to go to Tehran because I will have more time over the Caspian Sea. And then I can uh, uh, dump fuel because I'm too heavy to land. And so he did. So and uh, so this American guy eventually landed in Tehran, uh, was uh, moved to a hostel and received uh, a stand in less than one hour. So overall, at that time, the, 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 you know, the pain to, 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 to needle was uh, less than three hours. And the guy was 37,000 feet. So uh, today, when we deal with uh, situations like that, you know, we can even send the ECG. We, if we receive the ECG, we can send to receive in hospital. So they are all ready you know, to receive the patient as soon as they land. So uh, I think it's uh, exciting new times. Uh, thanks to technology, and again, thanks to having a system in place, right, to to address those situations in a more consistent and, a, uh, and professional way that should cover for all possibilities, right, to have from no doctor to any sort of, uh, of a medical uh, professional, including including a uh, another ER physician on board. But, I mean, a professional solution should address 100% of the situations and not only if we have or not and how trained the, per, the medical volunteer is or not. That's why, you know, the combination of uh, us and the medical volunteer is the, uh, is the, uh, is the best possible one. Wow. And uh, something that I truly enjoy is that seeing medicine above politics in this case, isn't it? So, right. you know, I, I mean, the, the, the person is extremely grateful to everyone involved. He was, I mean, and... It's good to know that the medical community is some, somehow above that. Well, so, I mean, that's still a country we do not have diplomatic relations with. So there must have been some other logistics involved with getting permission to bring an American citizen there, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, uh, but those cases uh, in the case are seen as uh, aviation emergencies. Of course, that particular airline they they uh, they used to fly to that region so security was not a problem i see so they also had their uh, own means and that's why you know the best recommendation where to go to varies tremendously from airline to airline and from time to time right so sometimes it's not uh, adequate to go at that time it was so uh, probably not acceptable uh, anymore today so yeah if i was that patient i think toronto i think i could be okay with um not so much in north korea so it really depends <laughs> Right. Yeah. Wow. And again, it will depend on uh, well, not too many flying to you know to North Korea, but yeah, it, it heavily depends on the on the relationship uh, that the airline has with that country. Uh, for that airline, uh, it was a, as I said, a Middle Eastern airline. You know, it was business as usual. They fly regularly to to that to makes stay sense. So yeah, not a big deal for them. Might have been a little different if it was an American no. carrier. Wow. So, oh, they wouldn't go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, okay, so one other thing here, too. So this device, even though it wasn't functioning properly, it did have the capability to transmit uh, the, the um, echocardiogram and, and data down, down to earth. What kind of things are, are available right now like that? I mean, this is the realm of telemedicine, and what other technologies are you guys working on? Yeah, I mean, uh, what is coming uh, is that, I mean, today, uh, I would say the, the greater uh, you know, obstacle for us to, to, to move to a new, you know, uh, uh, I mean, level is the is communication, right, air to ground. This is what re really limits us uh, in how, what we can do. But uh, listen, what is happening out there is that, you know, more and more airlines are you know, uh, making a, uh, Wi-Fi and, and internet, you know, connectivity on their flights. So this will open for, you know, some real cool, uh, you know, possibilities, right? Because uh, then you don't need to, to use, you know, very complex, uh, uh, hopefully, right, in the near future, we will be able to, you know, to, to use this uh, new means of communication to... Um, to, to medical, to support our medical decisions as well. So this is coming. Yeah, I think the internet would be key on that because I know mine was pretty slow earlier this week when I was traveling, and I guess you'd have to get everybody to volunteer to stop watching Netflix for a few minutes so you could transmit the data down. <laughs> but the reality is that, you know, they are using it for their own communication That's as true. well. 
So, you know, it's a totally different channel where the bandwidth could be, you know, totally devoted to, I mean, it's too early to, uh, but, but again, it's inevitable. It's coming. And uh, I think we're going to benefit from that. Well, Paulo, we're getting really close here. There was one other question I was curious about. Assuming you're a volunteer, you, you do your duty there. Um, should they dictate that afterwards, make notes of what they did? What, what's something they should think about at the end of that uh, trip? Yeah, of course. I, I think you know it's it's recommendable for you to you know to keep some some uh, record for yourself just in case, right? Uh, but also it should be reassuring to know that uh, in every case that we are involved, and when we say that you know, a structured uh, uh, ground-based uh, support uh, you know system is is in place, all the conversations are recorded. Right. And, and so we, we keep records and in including the original conversation. So and this uh, uh, is extremely helpful in reviewing the cases and, and, and helping afterwards uh, as well. So, I mean, we need to address, uh, you know, in, in summary, medical events, they do exist. They happen and they are not frequent uh, relatively to, uh, you know, to the uh, population of people flying. But exactly because there's so many flying, you know, we're going to have more and more medical events. It's, I mean, the, the actual numbers will certainly grow, right? So therefore, we need to have a system in place that is uh, professional in addressing this in a, in a, in a structured way. And, and this is exactly what you know, people should know because it is already in place. And I think we are still uh, not maximizing its potential. Yeah, so right now you, you hold a lot, your company holds a lot of data. Um, there, there is UPMC that has a call center, but this is all pretty decentralized from what we can see. There's no real federal regulations dictating the actual response and operations of responding to an emergency on an aircraft. So what kind of research are you doing right now, and what, are you, what ways are you looking to improve the, the outcomes? Well, I think uh, we need to, uh, and I think we can do a better job, although we've been trying to publish as much as possible about our experience. So did uh, UPMC th through that go uh, in the New England. Uh, but the reality is that I think the whole thing is uh, still surrounded by, you know, or shrouded by, uh, you know, some uh, mystery, you know, uh, mist. Come on, this, what happens in flight is exactly what happens in the city suspended in the air, right? The frequency of events could vary a little bit, but there is no, nothing that is absolutely unique to that environment, right? We are talking about people and their pre-existing conditions because flying per se doesn't cause any problem. I mean, otherwise I'll be very dead by now because in every frequent travel, yeah. right? So, no, if you don't have any condition, you know, flying is absolutely okay. You can go to Mexico City, right, and you sit in a, in a restaurant. Nothing is going to happen to you just because of that if you don't have anything, you know, any underlying severe condition, right? So uh, I understand that th this idea of a centralized thing, but honestly, uh, what, uh, you know, our, our, you know, uh, our counterpart uh, gets and what we get is enough uh, of, a, of a sample, as I said, 53,000 uh, 53, cases, right? We know exactly what is going on. I think maybe we can do a better homework in publishing more, we were able to publish uh, four papers, but we, uh, instead of giving a general idea, actually we, we focused on a few uh, uh, aspects. We focused, we, we published a paper on uh, in-flight cardiac arrests with the, the FAA, and we published two, one about you know uh, injuries affecting children in flight, and one about in-flight cardiac arrests affecting children. So, and, uh, but the plan is to, to publish more and more. We've been establishing partnerships with uh, many academic in institutions. So just pay attention because it's, it's, there's more to come. Fascinating. Um, so one quick question, uh, hopefully it doesn't add too much time. Um, everything that you're describing is really very exciting. Uh, and I think that some of our listeners may say, hey, this is a career path I'd really be interested in doing, maybe working for um, for uh, your organization. Are there careers available? And if so, what kind of considerations do people have to have in terms of training, in terms of licensure, things like that? Well, we rely uh, you know, upon, because the system, uh, as 
it was originally designed and still is, uh, we wanted to have uh, practicing uh, ER physicians sorting that because this is the, you know, the, the way uh, emergency physicians behave is actually very similar to, to pilots. They are straightforward. They you know they don't, uh, you know, uh, go around to, they, they, they go to the point, they make their assessments because they are, you know, uh, very much doers, right? So, and therefore, you know, the, the best way to, to work with us is to work for one of our partners in the ER uh, system because we have a, this very strong partnership with, uh, with uh, the Banner University uh, here. So this is the, the way uh, to do. Because again, we want them uh, current, we want them to be board certified. We want to, because exactly when things don't, don't go exactly well, how we, we expect, you need to have a solid background to support your you know, recommendations. Exactly. Great. Well, Paulo, we are, we've come to the end of the time, and uh, we really appreciate you jumping on with us today. This has been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Trust me. And we may have Thanks to have you back because I have a whole list of things we really didn't get into. So uh, we will, uh, if you're up for it, then we'll do a round two with this. Don't ask me twice. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, um, everyone, thank you for joining us today, and we're going to get some of the resources up online so you can take a look at more, including the research that Paulo mentioned and a link to MedAir and uh, some of the many things they do to keep us safe up in the air. Paulo, thank you again, and thank you, everybody, for joining us. This is Colin Miller of Keith Mankin on Pure Spectrum. Whenever, wherever you're listening, we'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Pure Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.